The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. We are starting off 2014 with a topic very near and dear to my heart, and that is environmental education. And we have one of the premier subject matter experts um, in the U.S. here to talk with us today about this topic. We have Dr. Gerald Lieberman, and he's got a brand new book out that I'm very excited to share with you all. It's called Education and the Environment, Creating Standards-Based Programs in schools and districts. It is terrific, and it's something that I'd recommend for teachers, principals, uh, school board members, parents, anybody who's interested in ensuring that we equip the next generation to handle the environmental challenges that are coming. We all know they're coming in the 21st century, and to do it in a very smart and standards-based way. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Dr. Lieberman, and congratulations on your new book. Well, thank you very much, Jill. It's great talking to you again. Well, it's great to have you on, and I'd like for you to share your perspective on why you believe the environment uh, is something that belongs in our educational system and in our classrooms today. Share your insights on that. Well, definitely. I think it's interesting if we go back through time, the history of our world, the history of education really is helping our children understand and live with the environment around them. We can go back to prehistoric times even and look how information was transmitted to children, and really this is how our whole civilization and society grew. In the earliest times, of course, it was hunting tools and and how do we capture animals, how do we cut down trees, how do we shape them into canoes, whatever it was, but it was about the natural resources that surrounded the, the people and the children And it was those things that also drove migration, the development of of civilizations. If you look back several millennia, you can look at what happened to the Fertile Crescent in in the Middle East to see that these things have always been critical to human survival, our economies, our cultures. Really, everything we do depends on those natural resources. What's happened in the last 150 years or so since the Industrial Revolution, as people have moved out from the rural areas or the uh, wild areas even uh, into cities and urban areas, they've become more and more separated from the natural world. And there was a move to reverse that in the late 1800s, and there were a lot of educators starting to talk about that and the need to give children opportunities to learn about the world around them. Well, as we've gone through 
the last several decades, really the last 120 years, despite all that interest in giving students outdoor experiences or nature experiences or helping them learn about wildlife and giving them real-world activities where they could get involved in doing something as well as learning about their environment, we've lost much of that. And really, the moves over the last 15 to 20 years towards standards-based education have in way too many schools, districts, and states driven the real world out of the classroom so that students haven't had the opportunities to take field trips that you and I grew up with, whether it was visiting a dairy farm or going to a park to explore the, the lake or the pond or the wetland. Those are things that we used to do, and they were viewed as something that was integral to our education. That's been lost in the last 15 years or so, except in a few exceptional cases. Mm-hmm. So when I it- talk to environmental educators around the country and ask them what percentage of children they think are exposed to the environment in their classroom experiences in their schools, the numbers that they give are fairly disheartening in the realm of 3 to 5 to 7 percent of students getting these real-world environmental experiences in the classroom. So since our survival today depends on the world around us, the natural systems, the wildlife, the forests, the resources out there as much as it ever did, it's crucial that our students learn about those resources, about those natural systems, about the animals, about the water, about the air, so that they are capable of understanding and doing something about it to help their communities be healthy places for them to live and for those natural systems as well. Well, clearly there's an environmental benefit to, you know, having this sort of knowledge base Per, you know, uh, pervasive through the next generation. But I know that you've done a lot of studies and you've documented very well that there are some educational benefits to students um, to infusing environment-based education into the classroom that are beyond just appreciation for the natural systems uh, and in the environment. Talk to us about these educational and uh, and other benefits to students of bringing the environment right into the classroom. Certainly. Well, and it's not just bringing the environment into the classroom, it's bringing the students out of the classroom into the real world as well. And I think there are a wide variety of benefits. Uh, I've spent many of the last 20 years looking at uh, this issue from the perspective of educators, classroom educators, and as we've moved into the standards-based world since the... uh, education commissions that began this process of developing national standards 20 years or so now, uh, we've had to begin, we've had to take a different perspective on this and look at not just wanting our students to know about the environment and to know about how to do something about it, but how can we make this fit within a school system? The day is busy, teachers are overwhelmed, students have too much homework, they're They're too busy after school to do that homework. They're too engaged in too many other things. So they don't have the experiences that we grew up with. But 
Therefore, we've had a look at this from the perspective of how can this kind of education help our students in what they are already responsible for doing in schools, everywhere from reading and writing and speaking to doing math to learning about science to learning about scientific processes to learning about history, economics, and other social issues as well. So it... We've looked at a variety of schools around the country over the last 20 years. In fact, we did a nationwide study in the late 90s that looked at how environment-based education has affected students' achievement on everything from standardized tests to classroom behavior to attitudes about being in school. And we've discovered, and our research has been supported by a number of other studies since, that when students are learning about something in the environment and through the environment, they're extremely engaged. We, we all know that students are naturally curious. Kid, kids are naturally curious. And uh, in a typical classroom traditional setting, they'll often that, that, that natural curiosity is often quelled as we have them sit in rows and in lines and uh, go out of the classroom to go to lunch in a line and go outside to play in a line. And and so bringing the environment into the classroom, giving them hands-on experiences, taking them outside, letting them explore, increases and maintains that curiosity, increases their enthusiasm about learning. Because what child, what adult, hasn't asked the question when they were in school or when they're an adult, why am I studying this? Mm -hmm. And so having the opportunity to learn something in a context, namely the environment, which they perceive as interesting and important, gives them the opportunity to be more enthusiastic and engaged in their own education and care about it. Mm -hmm. If they get a chance to ask a question about the forest that is found near their school or a park or a stream by their home, then they begin to understand that what they're learning in school, what they're learning with science, what they're learning about the history of their local community, what they're learning about reading and writing can help them to answer their own question about that local environment and give Mm -hmm. them a chance to do everything from research scientifically or historically or in the literature, to it gets them engaged is mm-hmm. the bottom line. It, it makes the education meaningful to them. And that was one of the interesting things we've heard over and over of we, as we've interviewed literally hundreds of students over the last 20 years. They stop asking the question about why are we learning this? Because they begin to see that the reason that they're learning something has to do with their environment, the real world that surrounds them. With their so own that, community. Yep. Their own, and that's their exciting. Their own community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Their own community, not uh, a rainforest 5,000 miles away that they may never see. And well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because in my work with the Go Green Initiative, I visited, you know, hundreds of schools in, you know, all 50 states, even schools that are registered with the Go Green Initiative in other countries. And I 
cannot even count the number of times that I've walked onto a school campus where they're beaming with pride about their Save the Rainforest campaign that's, you know, located 5,000 miles away. But you look around their own campus and first of all, I ask, well, gosh, is your toilet paper made from trees from the rainforest? They didn't even know that's what the rainforest trees were being cut down for in some cases. You know, there's maybe litter on the ground, no recycling, and and perhaps no thought about saving water or energy on their school site. Talk to us about the importance of using local community environmental issues as the basis for environment-based education. Well, it's probably the most critical aspect of this because – even though we know kids get excited about animals at the zoo and we can get them excited by showing them a video about a rainforest, we don't get them fully engaged because they actually never see what those pennies they collected for the rainforest do. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't have a real world perspective on that. It's not tangible to them. Children and adults, frankly, want to see tangible results from what they do. And so by dealing with local issues, some, it can be in the school building. It doesn't have to be outside. It's, it's good if it's outside, but it can be in the school. They can look at anything from how are we managing the waste from our lunch. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it makes it real, and they, they, they get to something that's tangible, and they can see that they make a difference. And I think one of the most critical things that we want to make sure our our children and adults can do is see that what they're doing can make a difference because it's extremely uh, disenchanting to be involved with something that you can't see that you've accomplished anything. We, I, I remember visiting a school in, in rural Iowa about 10 years ago, I guess it was, and they planted trees in the schoolyard. Well, that doesn't sound like a big deal to us. This was farmland, actually. There weren't a lot of trees left in that particular region. But what the teachers told me is these children came back year after year, and they would drive Mm -hmm. by, and they'd hear this from the parents. They'd drive by the school. They'd look in the back of the schoolyard, and they'd see their tree, and they'd say, we planted that. Mm Mm-hmm. Tremendous sense of pride, and they can watch it grow. Um, and and probably when they're adults, take their own kids there and say, "I remember when that was a sapling." And uh, you know, there's so many ways to do that. We'll discuss that a little bit further in our next segment. But we've got to take a quick break. So when we come back, folks, much much more with Dr. Gerald Lieberman. So don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. 
Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be joining us, our guest today is Dr. Gerald Lieberman. He's got a great new book out. It's uh, published by the Harvard Education Press, and it's called Education and the Environment, Creating Standards-Based Programs in Schools and Districts. Very, very practical uh, guide and, and theoretical as well. It talks to us about why it's so important to have the education as part or the environment as part of our kids' education process. But then the second part of the book goes into some very pragmatic best practices that will actually help educators develop um, a standards-based environmental education program. You know, Dr. Lieberman, in the introduction of your book, you made a fascinating statement that I want you to explain to our listeners. You said, I've reached the conclusion that changing the way teachers teach and students learn is the only way to develop an educated citizenry capable of resolving these challenges. And when you're talking about these challenges, it was uh, environmental and societal changes um, that are happening as a result of, of what, we're, what we're doing to the environment. Um, let's start with how you would change the way teachers teach. Talk to us about that. Well, it's interesting. If you look back at the genesis of academic standards, and really academic standards drive what goes on in all state departments of education, and of course that filters down to school districts and then to schools. The genesis of standards actually came from a conference that was held by the first President Bush meeting with business leaders around the country who were talking to him about the needs that they felt weren't being met by the educational system, that they weren't getting people to hire who were capable of identifying problems or solving problems or communicating about those problems. And that was really the genesis of standards. Unfortunately, what really 
happened in that process, which happened often bureaucratically, as people begin to think, what does that mean? How do we make that come into play? It came out to be a bunch of things. We need, Our standards were not driven by students doing problem-solving or being able to communicate in the way you and I might typically talk about it over coffee, but they were written in ways that were very seemed very stilted to many people, but it happens to be educator lingo. But what happens when that gets translated down to the classroom level is that most teachers, many but most, I would argue, have lost that perspective, which was the genesis of having their students learn how to solve problems, learn how to communicate with their with their colleagues or their peers, learn how to do research, all these things that were, in fact, what drove the genesis of the standards in the first place. So what I, I, I think about it and put it in a very simple way. If we want students to be, or as they're adults, to be able to solve problems, to be able to identify an environmental problem, to be able to solve it, to be able to do research about it, to be able to think about it, to be able to communicate about it, to be able to prevent other environmental problems, we need them to be doing that. It you only learn so how to ask questions and do research and solve problems by asking questions, doing research, and solving problems, not by reading a story about somebody doing it. Well, let me ask you this, Dr. Lieberman. How on board are the colleges of education in the U.S. with this concept? I mean, it seems to me that we've got to train teachers to teach that way. What are you seeing in terms of that kind of methodology being infused at the colleges of education around the U.S.? It's not happening. Wow. Uh, Unfortunately, the simple answer to that is it's not happening One of the difficulties is that, and this isn't a critique of them, it's just reality, university systems are slow to change, and that's where our teachers come from ultimately. But they're at the same time trying to track along with the changes that are happening in state departments of ed and in schools and the demands that that, um, administrators put on their new teachers. So... We really have to work at this in a parallel way. If we want, if we uh, if we want our schools to have teachers who are having their students ask questions and solve problems, whether they're environmental problems or different kinds of problems, we need to have administrators seeking those types of teachers. Mm-hmm. So we really have to. It, it's it's unfortunately or fortunately, reality-wise, it's like any other kind of business market analysis. We need to create the demand. And the way we create the demand is by having parents and students and businesses demand a different kind of education in the school system. And mm-hmm. as they do that, as, and as school administrators and district and state education systems begin to see that people actually want a different kind of education going on, then that creates a demand model for the universities and the colleges of education will change. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a slow process. It's a slow and frustrating process, but I, I actually think it's already begun. 
and your work and the work of many other people in the sustainability field have brought this to the attention of universities mm-hmm. and and businesses. But that and that process is critical. These these aren't individual pieces; they're all connected in the system, of course. Mm-hmm. And you know, so the colleges of education have been relatively slow to change, but there are some of them that are working this direction now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it's just something. It, it's a demand model. If if we want principal, if principals begin seeking and hiring new teachers who have these skills, then the colleges of education will begin to produce them. You know, in your book, speaking of one of those stakeholder groups that you mentioned, parents, uh, you cite a couple of reports that indicate that as many as 96% of parents want environmental education taught to their children. And I want you to talk about why that's important. How influential do you believe that parents can be in setting or influencing educational policy? Oh, uh, parents can be incredibly important in that because principals listen to them, school districts, district boards of education listen. These are publicly elected officials, the district boards of education, and they list, they, the parents are their stakeholder group. The parents are the ones who are going to elect them, and, and it really comes down to that, creating the demand from the parents so that their voices are heard is critically important. And we can see that. You can see some school districts where the parents have begun to demand this kind of environmental or sustainability education, and you see the mood, the mood of the district begin to shift. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about it to me is that, uh, in fact, I did a did a study for the Pew Charitable Trust about 18 years ago now. And one of the things that I saw that I found was critically important, one of, one of the interview groups I dealt with was the organizations and agencies that were promoting the development of the national standards, which would then eventually feed down to the state level. We don't have national standards, but organizations like the National Science Teachers Association and the National Research Council work the science standards, for example. So those began to filter into the state-level standards. But when I interviewed those people working at that national level, I think I was really quite shocked to hear from them how interested they were in hearing, uh, in, in adding in many of the concepts that come from environmental education, and now we're in sustainability education. They got it. They understood that this kind of environmental or environment-based education engages kids. They saw that. They like the hands-on techniques that are used in this field, yet it didn't get translated when we got down to the state level. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, it, it really is a demand model, mm-hmm. and if as long as parents go along with, and districts therefore are defined by how they score on some standardized test that doesn't really measure the students' skills at identifying or solving problems or uh, being able to speak to their community or learn about their community, 
as long as parents will accept that, we will go on having standardized tests that do nothing but determine if the students can fill out little bubble charts. If you that's know, not what we want, we've got to say something about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I also want to give some some airtime to our teachers, our professional educators. I, I Of course, the, the teachers that I speak with are oftentimes predisposed to infusing environmental education into their own classrooms. They take the initiative to um, find ways to integrate environmental topics into their existing curriculum. By and large, though, in your experience, are the everyday educators out there in the U.S., are they excited about environmental education? Do they want this? I mean, in as much as 96% of parents want environmental education, are there any similar studies showing the, the attitudes of educators towards infusing this in the classroom? No, I've, I actually have never seen a study of that. Um, but my experience, and I think what you're talking about, your experience with it, is that teachers are interested in this. The mm-hmm. question isn't whether there's teacher interest in this. It comes down to them from a higher level. So that if what we're looking at is a situation where a, a teacher is doing something about the environment and a principal is, walks into their classroom and says, this is, gets back to our discussion of standards, and says, wait, why are you doing that? How are you connect? How is that teaching anything you're supposed to be teaching in terms of our district standards or our state standards? That's the end of it. Mm-hmm. And so, what you're left with is the rare teacher who says, "I'm going to shut my door. I'm going to do it anyway." If the principal comes around, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'll, I'll make the case then. But that's why we go back to your question about standards. That's why. This kind of education needs to be connected to standards. Whether and I like love the fact that your that your second part of the book outlines step by step how to do that. Sorry to interrupt, Dr. Lieberman, but we've got to take a quick commercial break. But there's much more Go Green Radio right after this, folks. So don't go away. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. 
A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Glad that you could all join us. Our guest today, if you happen to just be tuning in, is Dr. Gerald Lieberman, and we're talking about his brand new book. Just came out last month. Harvard Education Press is the publisher, and the title of the book is Education and the Environment, Creating Standards-Based Programs in Schools and Districts. And just before the break, we were talking about why it is so important that environmental education is standards-based. And I want you to go ahead and finish that thought, Dr. Lieberman. I think that's a critical point that I want us to bring to our listeners during the show. Certainly. The, the issue really comes down to how do we respect what schools have to do already, what teachers have to do, what principals have to do, how they're measured and evaluated, and really how states are measured and evaluated the funding for uh, a large percentage of the funding, roughly 80%, I'm told, for, of California's education funding now comes from the federal government. Therefore, it has to be connected to standards because the federal laws require standards-based education. The funding requires standards-based education. The assessment requires connection to the standards so that if we don't make our environmental education or sustainability education connected directly to helping the students succeed and the teachers succeed with the instruction in those standards, we're really cutting out a large percentage of the classroom population because Mm -hmm. teachers can't focus on things that aren't important to what they're responsible legally and administratively for doing. And that makes perfect sense. And and it's true. We really do have to respect that. I know that even when I, I first started the Go Green initiative, um, I, I talked to a lot of teachers about what, what has kept you from um, using various environmental education programs that were already out there. And that was the number one answer. If it, it I, I can't add more instructional minutes to my school year. I've already got my schedule jammed up with standards-based you know, curriculum. I cannot add on extra stuff, and it's got to be integrated with the standards. And so I think that that is a very important point for anyone who's out there with a great idea for environmental education in their school district to make sure you're looking for things that are standards-based or creating things that are standards-based because the teachers – you know, they are really under a lot of pressure to meet those requirements. Um, you know, in Appendix A of your new book, you have um, a list of California's environmental principles and concepts. And, you know, 
California is not the only state, but it is one of those states that tends to have a, a spillover effect, um, especially when it comes to environmental policy, environmental education. Um, it, it tends to be a state where we'll try things first, and then if it works, other states pick up on it. And so with these environmental principles and concepts, I think that they have had some influence even outside of California. But even if it were just contained to California itself, California educates one in eight U.S. school students, uh, you know, students uh, K through 12 in the in the U.S. So I think that uh, that's enough influence right there. Talk to us about the five principles and why these were chosen. Yeah, I know you were a part of that effort. Yes, certainly. Well, it's the genesis of it was, uh, sorry for being bureaucratic, that the law asked us to identify major educational principles related to the environment. And that was critically important because of the fact that one needs to know what they're targeting for students to learn. And you can't just say, well, let's have them learn about this or that or the other thing. One needs to really have focus if you're going to succeed with any educational program. And what we discovered when we started looking literally around the world for major principles was that nobody had compiled a set of these are the big, really big ideas of what we need students to know about by the time they graduate high school. I would argue that these principles go higher than high school. They go to adulthood. Mm -hmm. But we wanted to identify the really big ideas and understandings that we felt every student needed to have, not the particulars about whether they knew about air quality issues or water quality or those those important, crucial to survival topics, uh, but but rather what were the biggest ideas that we needed students to be able to understand and to be able to think about and ultimately apply to their lives when they grew up to be adults. So we, 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 we brought together a group of about a hundred experts from uh, local envi- from environmental groups in California and state agencies and federal agencies and, and academic institutions and began a month long process. Ultimately, it took about nine months of development and we did focus groups and everything you would want us to do to make sure that we had covered the key ideas. And we ended up with five major principles. And let me not quote them verbatim, but summarize in just a few words what the five principles are. Sure. The first one is that humans depend on natural systems. And that means the the wildlife around us, the the uh, water system, the atmospheric systems, the the soil, all of these processes and ecosystem services, we call them. Humans as individuals depend on the health of those. As communities, we depend on those. As societies, we depend on those. And just to make the point about societies, if you think back to the way civilizations have fallen uh, or succeeded, it's because they have access to natural systems and the natural resources and 
ecosystem services and goods that those systems provide. So that first one, humans, Mm -hmm. lives, and communities and societies depend on the health of natural systems. The second Profound. One, I love that one. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it is crucial. We depend on those. We, mm-hmm. you know, if they're gone, if they're gone, we're gone. Right. It's really, quite simple. The second one isn't the inverse, but it's directly related, which is the functioning and health of those natural systems: terrestrial systems, freshwater, coastal, marine ecosystems are influenced by human societies. They don't depend on us, but they're influenced by us. Um, If we weren't here, they would still be here, Mm -hmm. but we affect their functioning and their health, and really, so it becomes critically important that our children and adults understand that those systems depend on us, they're influenced by us, and by every action we take. Mm -hmm. And one of the important concepts I just want to touch on there, and I, I, I was very pleased that we got this included in, in the concepts within these principles, is that that functioning of those natural systems is affected by human populations and consumption rates, something, you know, you know better than I that mm-hmm. those are the sustainability issues, right. consumption rates, how we deal with these resources how we maintain them and wisely use them, those are all relevant to the survival of those systems. Absolutely. Absolutely. The third, the third principle is sounds a little more technical, and I, I guess it is. It deals with a, a systems issue that we need our children to understand that there are natural cycles in those systems, if we wanted to think about the water cycle, for example, uh, let's just pick that one, and that humans as individuals and communities and societies depend on those cycles, and we benefit from them, and we can affect them also. by Depending on our behavior, we can affect them. So we, do, we depend on the water cycle for many things, our agricultural, our, our drinking can depend our water supply depends on that our agricultural systems depend on that um, again going back to the fertile crescent the reason the fertile crescent isn't fertile anymore was because of the way the human societies 3000 years ago affected the natural systems and the cycles of water in the fertile crescent region so mm-hmm. principle 3 Natural systems go through cycles, and humans depend on those and benefit from them. Mm-hmm. The, the fourth principle, and this is where you would think about uh, uh, issues related to pollution, and it's written in a very technical, scientific way, admittedly, but is that matter flows between natural systems and human social systems. So if if we take a resource out of the system and we process it, we release byproducts into the into that natural system based on what we take out of the system, how we process it, um, whether it's oil out of the ground or whether it's coal or what we we are affecting those systems as we move matter between the natural systems and the human systems. The the matter moves back and forth 
and it affects them. So pollution mm-hmm. affects the natural system, but as you know, it also affects the human society. And it goes back and forth, exchanging between the two systems. So that was a, our fourth major principle. Mm-hmm. The fifth principle and I think this really was crucial. I, I, I think I was surprised at this one that we, we came up with this, but as I've gone through the last 10 years thinking about it, this has become one of the really crucial ones to me, is about decision-making. And it sounds less technical than the others, but decisions, our decision-making processes, the things we think about in making decisions affect those natural resources and the natural systems. And so unless our students understand that there are many different things that needed to be taken into consideration when we're making decisions about how to use natural resources, unless they understand that there are many considerations, they don't know how to assess what any particular decision they might make whether it's how to use a material sustainably or whether they can just use it because it's an unending supply, they need to understand that whole relationship between issues and consequences and considerations so that they can factor those into their decision-making processes. Well, and I'll tell you why I think that's really important as well, because on the flip side of consumption is sometimes the youthful idealism that, well, why don't we just switch everything to renewable energy right now today and not understanding, um, you know, our social, economic, and 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 political systems well enough to say, okay, I want to see a certain change made and I want to work towards that and I want to organize, you know, my peer group toward that. If they don't understand the systems and the rationale around the way things are, they really get frustrated. I've seen this happen many, many times with youth groups. They get frustrated trying to affect the change that they want to see because they don't understand the complexity of the system that exists. And so I think that is a critical component. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about these principles and concepts in a little bit more detail. I have a I have a question for Dr. Lieberman that I am very, very curious about. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Our guest today is Dr. Gerald Lieberman. We're talking about his brand new book, Education and the Environment. And we were just discussing before the break uh, what's included in Appendix A of the book, and that's California's environmental principles and concepts. And one of the questions I have, Jerry, is that the concepts that are listed here that California has adopted all begin with the phrase quote-unquote, students need to know. Now, you and I both know (laughs) that simply knowing something doesn't necessarily mean that you'll take positive uh, steps, that you'll make positive behavior choices. I mean, kids know that smoking is bad for your health, but some of them do it anyway. And we could go on with a number of examples of of things that kids know, but they they make the opposite uh, behavior choices uh, that we'd like for them to. Why didn't California place greater emphasis on skills and action. In other words, knowing how to enact the principles versus just knowing them. Well, I, 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 I think this is an interesting issue because at, at some level it comes back to what we were speaking about earlier. And if we're trying to identify principles, and in this case concepts, that we want the education system to accept we do have to speak their language. And so students need to know is, whether we like it or not, typical standards-driven language in the state of California. Now, those students need to know statements were just overarching statements like the principles. Ultimately, what drove the development of the, of the curriculum that was developed under the Education and the Environment Initiative was very specific learning objectives. And learning objectives we drafted in a way that was relevant to the standards again, but much more action-oriented in terms of the, the issues that you're, you're raising. So let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, and uh, I picked these to be the extremes at the age group levels. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that kindergartners were supposed to learn and still are uh, under our state's history social sciences standards is kindergartners are supposed to understand how people lived in earlier times and how their lives would be different today. So, again, that's, you know, in a form like students need to know. They need to understand X. Well, when we drafted our learning objectives and then wrote the curriculum, we took the effort to connect that standard which is fairly simplistic, certainly at the kindergarten level, and connect it to those principles and concepts. So our learning objectives for that are identify that in earlier times people more directly consumed goods and services from natural systems rather than obtaining them from secondary sources. And I know many people working in sustainability and, and agricultural education, too, realize it's critically important that students know where their food comes from to be Mm -hmm. able to understand. So that, you know, there's a much more action-oriented kind of statement or that students can explain 
that the quantity of goods consumed by people increases as human communities grow, and mm-hmm. water and energy consumption will grow as human communities grow. So it's written in educational lingo, admittedly, but it, it was purposefully done that way so that we could ultimately get this curriculum approved by the State Board of Education, which was mm-hmm. our goal, so that teachers could be allowed to use it in their classrooms. And here's a 12th grade example, because I, I, I think this was one of the best things we did in de- designing the curriculum originally was as the 12th grade economic standard, and you'll say as I read it that, wow, what does that have to do with anything? Mm-hmm. Analyze how domestic and international competition in a market economy affects goods and services produced and the quality, quantity, and the price of those products. Well, on the face of it, that doesn't really sound like it has much to do with the environment or sustainability of the natural resources. Yeah, it does. It does, though, doesn't it? And rather than teaching it the way it has traditionally been taught, which would absolutely ignore the environment Mm -hmm. or natural resources issues, and frankly, one of the things in in planning the curriculum I did was to look at a high school economics book, a 12th grade economics book. The word environment was not in the book. Oh, my gosh. So we took that standard and we said, describe the direct, that students would be able to describe the direct and indirect effect of increased rates of extraction, harvest, transportation, and consumption of natural resources. Mm-hmm. and explain how greater quantities of the resulting byproducts influence the quality, quantity, and reliability of the goods and services provided by natural systems and mm-hmm. the health of those systems. So we And took, the health of the people around those systems. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, we could go right there. Well, and, you know, this kind of brings me to, uh, you know, the the point that, has kind of vexed me a bit since starting the Go Green Initiative back in 2002, and that is how do you assess the effectiveness of an environment-based program? I mean, for the Go Green Initiative, we've tried to actually show improvement of the environment around the schools that adopt our program. But from a standards-based perspective, how do you assess the effectiveness of environment-based programs? From a standards-based perspective, it's really uh, in gross terms, fairly simple, because to the, te- the if 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 the question you're asking me is in essence, can a teacher use this? How would a teacher know if they're doing a good job? Mm-hmm. Will the principal allow them to continue to use it? Will the district allow them to continue to use it? Remember, we're back at teachers have the responsibility for the standards. So when we drafted these learning objectives and then developed the state's curriculum to teach this, the point was we integrated in, as you said, there was a connection between that standard I read about economics and the resources. So Mm -hmm. we drafted those learning objectives and developed the units in a way that the standard would be taught well. And so that can be assessed in a typical standards-based way. Now, in our curriculum, we provide the teachers with a couple of different models of assessment. One is intended to look exactly like a state standardized test, and so it'll ask them all the typical questions about uh, uh, market economy and competition. The other aspect of what we do in the assessments are performance-based assessments or activities where the students might develop 
it, it, it varies across the grades, of course, and across the different units. But they might write a play about this to be mm-hmm. able to communicate about the importance, uh, the effects of consumption rates and extraction, et cetera, on natural systems. Something practical and real, a performance-based activity that you can mm-hmm. see them do. So, I love that. I love that. And I think, you know, there's so many examples in your book that show really practical examples, great testimonials. I, I love the fact that uh, you've got this out there and available to teachers, educators, and parents everywhere. Please do check out uh, Dr. Lieberman's book. It's called Education in the Environment. And uh, Dr. Lieberman, before we go, tell us the website where they can find it. Well, the easiest way for them to connect is via our organization's website, which is www.seer.org, or they can go to Harvard Education Press. Perfect. Well, thanks for joining us, Dr. Lieberman, and thanks to all of our listeners for being with us. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a great week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.